University of Chicago professor Jane Daly teaches a class about the 1968 presidential election, politics, and protest over the Vietnam War and other issues during Richard Nixon's first term. She covers the unrest in Chicago during the Democratic National Convention, gives background on each of the presidential candidates, and outlines the lead-up to the Watergate break-in. Her class is about 50 minutes. Today we're going to start with the 1968 uh, Democratic National Convention. We're going to talk about the 1968 presidential election. Um, so let's start with let's start with Chicago. This last summer was the 50th anniversary of the uh, Democratic National Convention in Chicago. I don't know if any of you uh, saw any of of the. There were a couple of specials. CNN did a special on that. We have some footage. It's pretty. Uh, I think it's pretty shocking for people to see nowadays. Before 1972, there were very few primaries. So most of the delegates to both conventions, the Republicans and the Democrats, were um, elected through, as we call it, back, you know, back channels, small party conventions, um, backroom meetings among various politicians. So in 1968, 73% uh, of Democratic delegates to the convention had been elected this way. So less than 25% were elected in the way that we normally do it now. Um, and Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, had taken himself out of the race, so he was not up for re-election in 1968, which initiated kind of a free-for-all in the Democratic Party uh, between uh, a, number, a number of candidates, <clears throat> one of which, who was very popular, was unfortunately uh, dead by August of 68, and that was Robert Kennedy, who had been a peace candidate, who had been a really a unifying candidate uh, for many people in the party. He was assassinated in June of 1968. So that's one thing that's lying behind the convention in August of 68. When people arrive, there are the Kennedy delegates who had already been elected, pledged to Kennedy. Um, Hubert Humphrey, who was Lyndon Johnson's vice president, had become the nominee, the party nominee by August um, as, as vice president. Um, there was another peace candidate, McCarthy, um, who also had delegates, uh, like Kennedy's, who showed up in Chicago in August. So you can see it's something of a free-for-all where the delegates are concerned. And it's more of a free-for-all in many ways, as you'll see. Because of the Vietnam War, because of Bobby Kennedy's assassination, there were a lot of people who'd come to Chicago to demonstrate, to demonstrate against the war, to demonstrate against the Democratic Party, uh, to demonstrate against LBJ, uh, basically, and then his, his stand-in, Hubert Humphrey. There were a lot of people on the streets outside of the convention in the Hilton, the Hilton Hotel, which is still there. Um, the city made some strategic errors. Mayor Daley, uh, the Mayor Daley, the old Mayor Daley, uh, had denied anybody a permit to, to spend the night in the parks um, or to uh, be in the parks after 11 p.m. And that was uh, something of a problem because there were so many thousands of young people who had come. There were a couple groups. There was the National Mobilization Committee to End the War, which was called the MOBE, M-O-B-E. Um, and there was the Youth International Party called the Yippies, uh, which are the ones you've probably seen. Uh, the MOBE was an umbrella group that was trying to forge consensus among young voters about the war, how to end the war in Vietnam. The Yippies were led, as it were, uh, by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, who were known for their street theater and their various antics. I think at one point in the stock exchange in New York, they'd managed to get in and they dropped all these dollar bills onto the floor of the stock exchange and then watched all the people on the floor of the stock exchange <laughs> scramble to get the money, which was exactly what they were looking for. While the Democrats were wrangling in the convention hall, protesters uh, in the streets started to clash with the police. We have some... Here we go. Oh. Peace now is what they're chanting. That's the Chicago police. Chanting, the whole world is watching. Yeah. 
This is when the police just, they charge the crowd and they start, uh, with their nightsticks, start beating people up indiscriminately, basically, you know, slapping people on the head, tear gas. You can hear the reaction to the tear gas. The police beat reporters to keep them from filming what they were filming. This was shocking to people for a whole bunch of reasons, but it was one of the first times um, that white young people were beat up indiscriminately by the police. Um, thousands of them, and it obviously made the news. It made the world news, which is why they were chanting, the whole world is watching. The whole world was watching. It was a huge embarrassment for the United States, but obviously also a defining moment for the people who were there. That's Grant Park, uh, the scene much later on of President Obama's uh, election, election rallies. Let's see what's happening inside the convention. That's what's happening on the outside of the convention, and there's one very famous moment when... Um, I can't remember if it's Mike Wallace looking out at the police beating up the protesters and saying, these are our children. What's happening? So here's, here's what's happening inside the convention, also at the Hilton. Oh, Dan Rather? I mean, I mean, man, man. And where are you hands? Take your hands off of me. Unless you intend to arrest me, don't, don't push me. We have a young Dan Rather. But don't push me. Take your hands off of me unless you intend to arrest me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but this, these are security people apparently around Dan. He's obviously getting roughed up. We tried to talk to the man, and we got uh, finally pushed out of the way. This is the kind of thing that's been going on outside the hall. This is the first time we've had it happen inside the hall. We, uh, I'm sorry to be out of breath, but somebody felt to be in his stomach doing that. What happened is a Georgia delegate, at least he had a Georgia delegate sign on, was... Uh, being hauled out of the hall. We tried to uh, talk to him to see why, who he was, and what the situation was. And at that instant, the security people, uh, well, as you can see, put me on the deck. I didn't do very well. I think we've got a bunch of thugs here, Dan. That's exactly what they had. They had a bunch of thugs uh, posing as, as Secret Service agents and as various security people, and they were exactly what they were doing. They were going down the aisles in the convention, beating people up, mostly uh, media, in the convention. There's then a huge uproar in the convention. We're going to pass on some of the dialogue between Mayor Daly, who could be very colorful in his language, uh, and some of the other, other delegates. The blame for the riot. Uh, and this is the first time there's an investigation of all of this. And this is the first time that anything's called a police riot. It was called a police riot for the first time. And that's that's what it was. And the blame for the riot can be laid squarely on the shoulders of Mayor Daley, who had denied protests uh, to people who intended to peacefully protest um, the war. He'd had a take-no-prisoners mentality, that he's the one who told the Chicago police, you know, go in there, take no, no prisoners. He was the one who ensured that Chicago would be the site when all of the world would see the unbridgeable gaps among Americans. There's a, a literary gadfly named I.F. Strone who says, the war is destroying us as we are destroying Vietnam. And uh, another reporter was actually more succinct. As he said, he said, the Democrats are finished. As he scrawled in a notebook, watching police chase hippies down Michigan Avenue. The twin legacies of the Chicago Convention and Lyndon Johnson's aggressive policies in Vietnam handicapped Herbert Hoover, excuse me, Herbert... Hubert Humphreys candidacy from the very beginning. He was, he was in a very difficult position. He was the vice president. Um, it's bad form to criticize a sitting president, even if that president is a lame duck president, as Lyndon Johnson was. Um, Hoover, God damn it, Humphrey, was much more inclined uh, to press for peace than Johnson had done. Uh, the Democrats looked very bad. Although the economy was booming, um, there was government spending on the increasingly uh, expensive war in Vietnam. So that part of things looked okay. The Democrats were all right there. Uh, but again, the war is increasingly unpopular. 
And Humphrey finally separated himself from Johnson's uh, war policies in September of 1968. He said he'd be willing to press for peace. He would be open to peace talks with Vietnam. Uh, he wanted a what he called a de-Americanization of the war in Vietnam. Um, he became a plausible peace candidate at that point, in other words, appealing to some of the young people who were here. Um, at the same time, the AFL-CIO, so labor, finally stepped up. Labor uh, constituency, traditionally very strong for the Democrats, but especially important in terms of organizing uh, the vote, getting people out to vote. That's what uh, labor did in those years. The late help from labor, um, it helped Hubert Humphrey, but it also created the impression that the election was closer than it really was. So the Republican Richard Nixon wins, and he wins with 43.4% of the popular vote. Humphrey had 42.7% of the popular vote. You're wondering, I know you are, because you're all very quick in your head, where was the remaining 13.5% of the vote? And that vote went to uh, former Alabama governor George Wallace, uh, who ran, ran as an independent. There he is. There's George. It's a very happy George. You can tell from the uh, Confederate battle flag behind him what his policies might have been. Uh, he ran as an independent in 1968. He also ran as an independent again in 1972. He, he's important here not just for who he is, but for the effect that his campaign has. His campaign detaches to traditionally urban white um, sectors to the people who'd voted for the Democrats previously, sort of white working class voters in cities. Um, they were attracted to Wallace, and he did very well in Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and Illinois. He got more than 10% of the white vote in those places. Westerners liked him too. Idaho, Nevada liked George Wallace. Um, he split the Southern vote with Humphrey, um, sorry, excuse me, with Nixon. Wallace and Nixon, Wallace is a Democrat, former Democrat, um, now an independent. He and Nixon split the Southern vote, which was traditionally the Democratic vote. Uh, between them, they take every state in the South except for Texas, which was Lyndon Johnson's home state. Richard Nixon, former vice president under Eisenhower, Earlier, a congressman, Republican con congressman from California, he wins the election in 1968 in part by um, taking away some of Wallace's issues. So Nixon talks about restoring voice to the quiet Americans, the Americans who don't go out on the streets, the Americans who are not making trouble, the Americans whose children are fighting in Vietnam, in fact. Uh, he takes some of that vote from Wallace, he has a vice president who becomes famous, uh, not for good reasons, Spiro Agnew, who's the former governor of Maryland. Uh, Spiro Agnew talks about exactly who is going to be represented under Nixon presidency. And he says, Nixon, Nixon's campaign was bringing us together after the Democratic, uh, the debacle of the Democratic Convention. Nixon was going to bring people together. He was going to bring the country together. Here's how Spiro Agnew defines what that really meant. He says, it's time to rip away the rhetoric and to divide on authentic lines. He says, when the president said, bring us together, what he meant was the functioning, contributing portions of American people. The new president would have his job uh, cut out for him. The same Americans who voted really quite overwhelmingly for Nixon, uh, or at least who catapulted him into the White House you know, over Democrats, uh, gave the Democrats both houses of Congress. So Richard Nixon in 1968 will be the first president to <coughs> enter the White House um, without control of either house of Congress since Zachary Taylor in 1849. That's how unusual it is for a president not to have either house of Congress when he begins. Um, that represents in part a real, you can see that as real distrust at this point of government. Um, and wanting to have real checks and balances. President from one party, both houses of Congress from another party is an extreme version of that kind of distrust that you see other times. Nixon's job in 1969, as he begins his presidency, is to sue the nation that had fractured into multiple groups, um, whites, African-Americans, women, men, youth, old folks, workers, intellectuals, um, and they were all at odds 
with each other. And this phrase, middle America, was not a phrase in the 1960s. It's a new phrase that comes to describe this portion of America that is where American presidential elections are going to be fought um, and won on for the next 40 years. This thing, this thing, middle America, uh, wasn't very firm in the late 1960s, though it was more marsh than solid ground. It was hard to figure out who was in middle America, who was not in middle America. Um, and maintaining majority was tricky for Richard Nixon, or for anybody, for that matter, in the White House. Um, Nixon had a majority that was formed by disgruntled white Democrats, so Wallace voters, with an increasingly conservative, fiscally and and, and culturally conservative Republican Party. So this is where Richard Nixon is standing in the middle. Uh, middle. And it's, it's managing to get the voters who will vote for both of those things. That becomes very important. Um, and in fact, Nixon's uh, election in 68 is usually regarded as a bellwether um, for the next um, presidential elections. The Democrats actually, uh, the Democrats win only one of the next six, six presidential elections between 1968 and 1992. So you have a very long period of, of really of unified Republican um, uh, control of the White House. And it's a profound shift in American politics. It's the beginning of a profound shift in American politics. So Nixon realizes that his future depends in good measure on his ability to woo those Americans who voted for George Wallace in 1968. That's 13.5% of, of the voters. Nixon needs to have those people uh, in order to win. And he understands that Wallace voters, uh, whether they're in the South or the North, for that matter, are spooked by the social changes of the 60s. They're spooked by the changes in race relations. They're spooked by the changes in, in youth behavior, in relations between the sexes. They're spooked by hippies. All of these things um, upset them. And Nixon uh, takes on this this Wallace law and order mantle, where he talks rather vaguely about just sort of calming things down. And he's going to be the protectors of middle class, read white, against the lawless urban class, read black. This is what he's always talking about, these people in the cities. Uh, they're, they're burning the cities. They're you know, wrecking America. And he had a hard time because he had to um, lure these Wallace voters, which included... Democratic voters uh, in the North, urban Democrats, working class, urban Catholics, for example, traditionally, you know, urban Catholics voted Democratic. They voted for Mayor Daley, who was, you know, an urban Catholic. They voted Democratic, and Richard Nixon needs those votes. So this is the moment when the Republican Party starts to reach out to what was traditionally a Democratic working base. It was a working class voter base of white ethnics that had been, if you remember back, been part of the New Deal coalition in the 1930s um, aren't there all that long. We tend to think of, of working-class whites as being Democrats. In fact, they're only Democrats for about 30 years, and then they've been Republicans for longer than that um, by now. Nixon understands that Democrats want security. And this is old word again, back from the New Deal. You remember, we talked earlier, Social Security, all the different programs. Uh, people want security. And, then, and that they are defenders of the New Deal social safety net. Uh, there aren't Republicans, or there aren't, there aren't Wallace Republicans, there aren't, uh, sorry, Wallace Democrats, there aren't old Democrats from the Democratic coalition. Those people want to keep the New Deal. They're not interested in, in and Republican economics as they're being described in the late 1960s. Um, Gary Wills, who was a syndicated columnist, uh, later said uh, his definition of American conservatives uh, was apt. He said, Americans are conservatives. What they want to preserve is the New Deal. <coughs> what do they want in this New Deal? Wallace is independent, American independent. He's not there anymore, but you remember him. Wallace's American Independent Party um, had called for increases in Social Security, for national health care, and the right to collective bargaining. So you see why Wallace was appealing to workers, to working class. Um, and it just reminds you again how long uh, national health care has been on the agenda. We talked about it already under FDR. We talked about it again under Harry Truman. Um, here it is again with George Wallace. 
leading conservative magazines described uh, George Wallace's brand of conservatism and Nixon's uh, adoption of it as country Western Marxism. And to romance these workers, Nixon embraced key elements of LBJ's Great Society vision, um, signing a whole bunch of laws that were passed by this Democratic-controlled Congress. So you get a really interesting... I'm going to read you the list of laws that Richard Nixon passed. Um, Richard Nixon, as a Republican, passed all of these laws with a Democratic-controlled Congress. Um, so Republicans begin to complain after a while. But here's a list of the things that Richard, that Richard Nixon passes. Uh, he passes a National Environmental Policy Act, which created the EPA, the Environmental uh, Protection Agency. He passed the Clean Air Act. He passed the Consumer Protection Safety Act, the Federal Water Pollution Control Act, the Noise Pollution and Control Act, the Equal Opportunity, Equal Employment Opportunity Act, the Federal Election Campaign of Act of 1971, uh, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act. I know these names. You don't have to keep up with them. The Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA, which is always a constant target under Republicans ever since. Workers in dangerous occupations like coal mining or who were exposed to hazardous uh, substances like asbestos uh, were big fans of all of these things. These were very popular things. Republicans held their applause. The Republican president, said Fortune magazine, uh, was putting cuffs on capitalism through corporate regulation. Nixon's baffling blend of republicanism and radicalism confused the New York Times. As I said, it was was congenial, though, to the heirs of populism. You remember, way back, our friends the populists, heirs of populism, heirs of the New Deal, um, these people, the country Western Marxists, liked this a lot. This it was very popular. And this, this cemented uh, that white working class electorate into the Republican base. These people had never voted Republican in their life. They voted for Richard Nixon. What's happening with the economy in the 1970s? We'll come back to this one. The basic answer is nothing good is happening with the economy. Um, And American prosperity, uh, especially working-class prosperity, had been considered synonymous with the national interest since World War II. And if you look in World War II in the 1950s, there's talk about the American people and all of these things. Uh, You remember the the, uh, GI Bill of Rights, which was there to kind of help help working-class Americans buy houses, to help them go to school. These things had all been done with uh, the interests of the white working class uh, foremost in mind. FDR, you remember, had said already in 1944 uh, that every American had the right to a job, a living wage, a home, and an education. So these are things that are on the agenda since the New Deal. And even by 1945-44, you have actually the expanded New Deal, uh, the second Bill of Rights that Roosevelt is talking about. And this is a quote from from Roosevelt in 1944, he says, we cannot be content, no matter how high that general standard of living may be, if some fraction of our people is ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, and ill-secure. Americans found this, opin- this, uh, this position very appealing in 1944, and they still did 30 years later. Um, it was a bedrock, um, both, both parties. Uh, there are a few people... Uh, like libertarian Barry Goldwater, who wanted to tinker um, with the basic social security state, uh, but nobody else really did, or nobody else with any any power um, actually did. In 1973, a Gallup poll said that 91% of Americans believed that tax laws should be changed to ease the burden on moderate and lower income and increase those on higher income and on corporations. It's 91% of Americans want to see their taxes lowered and taxes on the rich and corporations raised. Um, That's true, actually. A majority of Americans still believe that. Um, It just hasn't been part of policy. In 1973, 72% of Americans agreed with the statement, the federal government has a responsibility to do away with poverty in this country. Although 69% were skeptical about welfare, 62% felt that more should be done to help the poor. And one thing uh, to bear in mind is that 
full, full employment as a goal is part of the basic platform of every political party until the 1970s. They don't achieve it, but it's there as a goal. The idea that everyone should have a job is there. It's in the platform. It's something to be, it's aspirational. Um, they don't get it, but it's, it's there as a value. Um, it's something that disappears later on. But the key to prosperity in this country, and this is true the, when you talk about the um, right to, right to, to work, uh, platforms or legislation, the key to opportunity in this country was always the opportunity to work, to have a job. This is in part because of what's been happening for the 30 years back, right? So if you look back into the New Deal, when, when Franklin Roosevelt entered the White House in 1933, 25% of Americans could not find a job, right? You remember this, a quarter of Americans who wanted a job could not find a job. And throughout the 1930s, unemployment never dipped below 14%. So where is unemployment today? That's right, <laughs> 4%, roughly 4%, um, which is really very low. Um, in the 1950s, unemployment dipped down to 4.6%, so almost as low as today. By 1969, it was at 3.9%. So, you know, we'd have to recount the votes, right, to tell the difference between 3.9% and 4 today. Again, very low by 1969. Between 1945 and 1970, this is important. Americans became richer overall, meaning people got, were doing better overall. At the same time, the gap between rich and poor contracted, got smaller. Um, and this is known, you'll be surprised to know, as the Great Contraction. We'll talk about this more uh, later on. But this is an important thing because now, of course, if you look at those same statistics for Americans, you know, it's been getting wider and wider and wider and wider. Um, this period between 45 and 1973, it got um, narrower. a little bit about Vietnam, which we've not talked much about yet. We'll talk more about it um, on Thursday. Richard Nixon, um, Richard Nixon was a brilliant statesman. He really was. And he was desperate to disentangle the United States from Vietnam. He wanted to get America out of that war. It wasn't at all clear how to do it. Um, in part, he wanted to get out of it because he wanted to pursue uh, a very vigorous anti-Soviet um, uh, foreign policy. He was always, I mean, Nixon, Nixon, since he came to, to Washington as 46, he was a virulent anti-communist, which didn't mean he couldn't play with the communists when he needed to, like, for instance, when he established relations with China, uh, right, quite, quite dramatically. Uh, but he wanted to get out of Vietnam for all kinds of reasons. Americans didn't want to be there anymore either. He had an ally at his side. I'm sure you all know um, who it was. It was Henry Kissinger, um, also a brilliant, brilliant statesman, possibly not as brilliant as he himself thought and thinks, but still very, very effective. Um, if you were the Secretary of State, you hated him because he was the National Security Advisor, and he just did end runs around the State Department whenever he wanted to. Whenever Kissinger thought we should be doing something, he just did it um, and never told anybody, and they found out later on, uh, which was sort of embarrassing if you were the Secretary of State. And it was Nixon, uh, sorry, it was Kissinger, really, who articulated what came to be called the so-called Nixon Doctrine. And I think it's, you know, since Nixon, everyone has to have a doctrine. Um, Nixon really did have a doctrine, uh, Nixon-Kissinger Doctrine. But what it was was effectively a um, rejection of containment. Remember, we talked a while back about the idea of containment, that we, the United States could contain um, communism everywhere. And this is how the United States got involved in all these little wars, including Vietnam, which turned out not to be a little war at all. And Nixon's, the Nixon Doctrine, um, announced that although America would reward its friends with economic aid and um, even with weapons sales, uh, that it was no longer going to dedicate its own troops to combat communist growth uh, anywhere. Uh, in the world, but mainly in Asia and Africa and Latin America. So it would send money, it would send um, 
weapons. It might send advisors, but that was how we got into Vietnam in the first place in the 50s, so that was maybe not a good idea. But they weren't going to send American troops anymore uh, to fight other people's wars. He had, at the same time, a three-pronged approach to end the Vietnam War honorably. Um, no one wants to end a war dishonorably, <coughs> so I think that pretty much everybody was on board for ending the war honorably. Uh, but this meant trying to preserve an independent pro-United States government in South Vietnam. Uh, this was very difficult because the North Vietnam were actually winning the war, and you'll see that they do. In fact, um, pretty much the minute the United States takes its troops out of Vietnam, uh, the North the North wins. But this is still the goal. The goal is to have a pro-United States government in South Vietnam. And Nixon tries to accomplish this through a series of meetings in Paris uh, between Henry Kissinger and the North Vietnamese. Uh, he also wants to do what he calls the Viet... I'm going to not say this word right. Vietnamization of the war. In other words, by replacing... Um, by pulling American troops out and replacing them with South Vietnamese troops trained by the Americans, armed by the Americans, but in other words, trying to get our troops extricated from Vietnam itself, um, and by expanding the air war. And this is something you've probably seen images of or heard about. It becomes extremely controversial. And the idea of to expand the air war is to force North Vietnam to compromise, uh, to Basically, I and mean, we, talk, we talked already and we read Slaughterhouse-Five talking about the way that uh, war, war that's targeting civilians becomes acceptable in World War II. And this is basically what's happening now in Vietnam. And they say usually there's a military base or something. There's a military target of some sort. But in truth, what they're doing is they're targeting uh, civilians and killing a lot of them. These tactics don't work. Um, the bombing of North Vietnam uh, does not actually end the war, does not particularly demoralize um, the North Vietnamese. And as this happened, as the bombing expanded, you get a massive anti-war movement in the United States. 750,000 people participated in the November moratorium um, in 1962 in, um, in Washington, D.C., which is still the largest anti-war uh, demonstration in American history. It may be the largest demonstration at all still. Maybe not. Maybe last, some of last year's um, demonstrations were bigger. Um, but it's the largest anti-war demonstration in American history, and really nothing like it had been seen in, 19, in 1972. People weren't uh, populating the mall. The closest thing would have been Martin Luther King's uh, March on Washington. Uh, but that's really quite small compared to this. That's about a 100,000 people, I think, on, simply on the mall. Um, and this is three-quarters of a million of American people come to Washington and march. The anti-war movement at this point also split, uh, and it turned violent. So between the fall of 1969 and the spring of 1970, so not very many months, right, maybe six, six months, there were at least 250 bombings and they were directed at ROTC buildings, on college campuses, um, at draft boards, at, at draft, draft centers, at federal offices, and at the headquarters of certain corporations that were considered to be um, particularly involved in the war. 250 bombings in six months is a lot of, is a lot of bombings. Um, it's, just think how we felt a week ago when bombs that didn't go off were sent in the mail. Um, if bombs were going off around us, uh, every week, we would become, I think, very unnerved, and people did. And the goal of these bombings, you're asking yourself, why were people doing this? Who was doing it? It was young people doing it. Why were they doing it? And the goal, as they put it, was, was called to bring the war home. They wanted to force Americans to experience the war that was being endured on a much, much greater scale by the Vietnamese. In other words, they wanted to bring home some of the terror uh, that other people, the Vietnamese, were experiencing while having our government drop bombs on them. A member of the Weather Underground organization, which was um, a kind of under, literally underground, it was one of the organizations that split from the Students for a Democratic Society, which was rooted in the 1960s. Um, this is the member of the Weather Underground um, explaining, and she says, we felt that doing nothing in a period of repressive violence is itself a form of violence. If you sit in your house, live your white life, go to your white job, allow the country that you live in to murder people and to commit genocide, you sit there and you don't do anything about it, that's violence. 
This had very little effect on the government in 1969, in the spring of 69. Um, well, actually, it's probably a response. It was the fall of 69 to the spring of 1970, or the, the bombings. It's the spring of 69 uh, that Nixon ramps up the bombing campaign against the North Vietnamese, and he does something uh, very dangerous. He secretly, in other words, without informing Congress, uh, which had the right to be informed, he secretly extended the bombing to the Viet Cong bases, the North Vietnamese army bases, and also to supply routes in neighboring Cambodia and Laos. So the, the Viet Cong uh, was being supplied, literally, by communists in Laos and in Cambodia. And it was very difficult. The American government kept trying to cut off that, uh, that lane of, uh, of supplies into North Vietnam with bombing. Um, it was very, uh, it was unsuccessful. And so in April of 1970, Nixon sent South Vietnamese and American troops across the border into Cambodia. This was completely illegal. We were not at war with Cambodia. There was no authorization from Congress to go to war with Cambodia. They just sent troops across the border into Cambodia. And this strategy also failed to dislodge the North Vietnamese uh, from Cambodia, who continued to be supplied from Cambodia. It did have um, the effect uh, of the unintended and undesired effect of supporting local communist insurgents in Cambodia as response to this. Um, and the resulting Khmer Rouge, that's the Cambodian communists, their victory in Cambodia, helped by the North Koreans, uh, encouraged by the United States, was catastrophic for the Cambodian people, two million of whom fell victim to the genocide um, that was perpetrated by the communists as part of their what they call their rural relocation program. It's hard to do this in secret. The president got found out. It was revealed. Again, it's hard to, it's hard to go to war against another country with no one noticing. Um, immediate protests in Congress uh, respond to this um, in the media and on college campuses nationwide. And this is, this is, when, this is when college campuses explode with with students you know, out, out in the quads, out wherever, protesting the American uh, policies, protesting the war, protesting the draft, um, you all would be uh, eligible for the draft depending on which year it was and depending on when you graduated. So uh, think about that one for a second. It's not a good moment for young people. You can see why you're out. You'd be out there too, probably, protesting. Um, at Kent State University in Ohio, you've seen this image, I'm sure. Kent State was a public university with a largely working-class white student body. Um, and students burned a copy of the Constitution and then burned down the campus ROTC building. So, you know, not, not good behavior for the, if you're the president of the university, but that's what they did as a protest. The governor of Ohio denounced the students as he said, the worst type of people we harbor in America. And he dispatched National Guard troops to quell the unrest. They, were, they weren't rioting, but there were a lot of people out. And this is one of the most tragic moments, frankly, in, in, in the, the whole student movement. Uh, because what you get there is you have 19-year-old National Guardsmen who are unnerved by 19-year-old students throwing rocks at them. And they shoot them. And they kill, uh, they kill four students at Ohio State. They also kill uh, another two people who had not participated in the riot at all, the protest at all, but who found themselves within the two-mile range of the guardsmen's M1 bullets. So they're shooting something that has a two-mile range, and they managed to hit two people um, beyond from where they were. The response to the Kent State murders, fast and furious, Within a few days, one and a half million students nationwide have walked out of class. A fifth of the nation's colleges and universities had closed their doors temporarily. Eleven days after this, um, Mississippi uh, state troopers opened fire on a dormitory at Jackson State, which is an African-American college, um, killing, killing two people and other two students. Still the war drags on. In April of 1971, which was a year after the murders at Kent State, 
A half million people gathered again in Washington to demand America's immediate withdrawal from the war. A week later, thousands of protesters assembled in Washington again, aiming to use massive nonviolent protests to paralyze the city. So they're going to you know, cut, off, cut off the highways. They're going to do all of those, those things. But before they had a chance to act, so they'd done nothing yet. They'd, they'd gathered, uh, but they hadn't done anything yet. Before they had a chance to act, police and the military swept the downtown area in Washington, D.C. 7,000 people were arrested and were incarcerated temporarily in Robert F. Kennedy Stadium. Newsweek uh, magazine was appalled, and he condemned that the attacks on the protesters uh, seem more appropriate to Saigon in South Korea uh, in wartime than in Washington, D.C. President Nixon was unperturbed. A few days later, he told his aide, Charles Colson, this is is a Nixon quote that can be read. It's, It's clean. He says, one day we'll get them. We'll get them on the ground where we want them. And we'll stick our heels in, step on them hard, and twist. Right, Chuck? Right? That's our president. Somewhere between 1967 and 1971, the war that we were fighting had ceased to be a war between the United States and Vietnam and had become a vicious battle among Americans. President Nixon finally achieved a negotiated settlement uh, in Vietnam in January of 1973. You see how long this is dragging out. This is into his second term. He finally achieved this negotiated settlement. American bombing ended, uh, as did the draft. Uh, Ever since then, we've had an all-volunteer draft since 1973. In November 1973, Congress passed something called the War Powers Act, which spelled out the procedures to be followed when the introduction of American forces could lead to their involvement in combat. Now, this was passed over President Nixon's veto, as you can imagine, and the one thing that every single president since Nixon has in common is that they've interpreted the War Powers Act as an unconstitutional infringement on executive policy. The Paris Peace Agreement uh, was negotiated by Henry Kissinger, unsurprisingly, um, and it left the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops in control of the South. In other words, it did not push North Vietnamese back, which was the thing they'd been trying to do the whole time and failing at. Um, And they failed, therefore, to to address the basic issue of the war that they had gotten into in the first place, which was whether Vietnam would be one country or two countries. Uh, They don't address that. That question is addressed definitively uh, in the spring of 1975 when North Vietnam launches a military assault on the North uh, excuse me, against the South, and the Americans fail to intervene, the Nixon Doctrine. On April 30th, 1975, even further, Americans glued to their television sets, um, and I actually remember this, uh, watched as North Vietnamese tanks rolled into Saigon and as American helicopters uh, evacuated Americans from the United States Embassy. In, in South Vietnam. And if you've seen those images, again, they're really um, wrenching because they have people getting onto the helicopters and other people desperately trying to get on also and who are not able to get on, who are left instead, people who had aided the Americans um, there. The final cost of the war in Vietnam can be measured in lots of ways, as every war that we've talked about. It can be measured in, um, in money. It can be measured in the end of the Great Society, uh, whatever, whatever Lyndon Johnson had hoped for in his social programs uh, was swallowed up by the war in Vietnam as he himself recognized uh, what happened. He predicted that. Uh, he knew it. 58,000 Americans died in Vietnam. Um, three to four million Vietnamese died in that war. 300,000 Americans are wounded. Countless, countless Vietnamese are also wounded in that war. It has a $100 billion price tag, which doesn't sound like much today, um, but was a whole lot then. It was enough to bankrupt all of the social services, basically, um, that uh, we had, including we talked about how you pay for a war, uh, too, whether or not you raise taxes, Right? Every war we've talked about has been, do you raise taxes or do you take on debt? Uh, and one of the things that President Johnson did that 
kept the war going as long as it did without people protesting was that he refused to raise taxes and instead used debt. Um, and several of his advisors wanted him to use taxes because when you raise people's taxes, they ask why. And when you say, oh, it's because we're in this war that we forgot to mention, um, then they might say, well, let's talk about that war before we go any further. The Vietnam War um, had more uh, repercussions than, than the dead. It permanently divided a generation for at least the next 40 years. Every political campaign until Barack Obama was fought in part on where were you during Vietnam? What did you do during Vietnam? Did you fight during Vietnam? Did you get a deferment during Vietnam? Did you have some kind of uh, injury uh, or chronic effect that kept you out of Vietnam? Barack Obama is the only one young enough not to have this be um, an issue. I thought when I was writing, I thought, oh, well, Amanda, you know, you know, when Barack Obama was elected, I thought, great, a torch has been passed from the Vietnam generation. We're going to get Vietnam out of our politics. But that baby boomer generation, you know, they just pull it back. They try to get out, and they pull it right back. So again, we still have Vietnam in our politics, although by this point, interestingly, no one cares. Um, no one seems to care. It was a huge issue uh, in 1992 when Bill Clinton was running for president. That was a big issue. Where were you in Vietnam? Um, by the time we get to a sort of 70-year-old candidate, I think no one really, it's not, it's not important to anybody particular um, anymore. Let's talk a little bit about, where are we now? If we can get a little bit to, uh, to the other thing Richard Nixon is known for. We do the Vietnam piece because he actually did get us out of the war, uh, but he also put a lot of people in jail in the end, and I'm not talking about uh, people on the streets. I'm talking about the people in his own administration, uh, as he did during the Watergate crisis. And Nixon was always kind of paranoid about how, how he was being treated, how he was going to win, whether he would stay in office, whether people liked him. He was very important. People did not like him, in fact, which is why he was kind of paranoid about whether or not people liked him, uh, probably. Again, in 1972, he's running for re-election. George Wallace, ah, almost to Watergate. First, he has to get re-elected, but that's okay. That's quick, um, because Watergate starts, starts actually in the re-election of 1972. Uh, um, Richard Nixon did not have any worries, really, about being reelected. Um, he wasn't going to—he wasn't going to not not be reelected um, in 1972. But he got himself into a position, and it's hard to say. Nixon had always been uh, known as someone who engaged in dirty tricks as as a politician. His his nickname already in the 1950s was Tricky Dick, uh, which gives you an idea of his reputation, at least among other politicians. Um, then and. In the election, um, one of the things that, that had happened earlier, um, well, we're not going to go back there, actually, right now, uh, but one of the things that, that Nixon, it's just part of the repertoire of Nixon's political operatives is breaking and entering, breaking into a psychiatrist's office to get at Daniel Ellsberg, who had released the Pentagon Papers, leaked the Pentagon Papers, wanting to break into uh, the assassin, George Wallace gets, um, gets shot in 1972. The assassin actually wanted to get Nixon. He couldn't get close enough to Nixon, so he shot George Wallace instead. Didn't kill him, left him paralyzed. Um, the first reaction of Nixon upon hearing that George Wallace had been uh, assaulted was to send one of his guys to break into the apartment of Arthur Bremer, who was the, uh, the shooter there, and try and plant some McGovern propaganda from the 72 election. Um, Colson fails in this. The FBI had already gotten there. He was, you know, there were police lines. He couldn't actually get in there and plant stuff. And Nixon says, that's okay, never mind. We'll try it again another time. He starts to go a little nuts in the early 70s. He says, you know, let's, let's break into this guy's apartment and, and plant, plant, you know, democratic literature. Let's break into the Brookings you know, Institution. He wants to break into the Brookings Institution to see if he can find anything on uh, Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, he wants to um, break into the National Archives and steal secret Vietnam papers um, about President Johnson's AIDS. He was enamored about this. Like, 
really? We can do that? There are ways to do that? We can break into the, into the, the, the uh, National Archives? Like, no, you can't break into the National Archives. But he thought it would be a good idea anyway. Um, and he had this thing called the enemies list, which was uh, very, very long. And I know people, people at the t- in the 70s who were um, offended that they were not on the list that they were as big a critic as anybody else as Richard Nixon. Why weren't they on the enemies list when the enemies list was finally published? Um, but he also uh, just liked to play dirty in the election. In 72, he had uh, his people go around. And his, his opponent in 1972 was a guy named Edmund Muskie, who was the former uh, governor of Maine. And so Nixon planted rumors that Muskie's wife um, was, was <laughs> she was a drinker. And she told dirty jokes. This was what, what he said. This was enough to get you in trouble politically in 1972. He slipped Muskie's pilot. And this is not Nixon himself. These are his people. But they, they, they got a fake schedule to Muskie's pilot when he's trying to fly Muskie around to various you know, campaign events that completely screwed up his schedule. He couldn't get anywhere on time. Um, they had, they had rumors, rumors that Muskie was going to have Carl Stokes, who was the African-American uh, mayor of Detroit, as his running mate. Again, this may or may not have played well with people. And before we end, he had a fake Harlem for Muskie committee calling people at midnight um, and saying to them, this is the Harlem for Muskie committee, you know, can we count on your vote? Uh, well, no, not if you're somebody who doesn't want black people in office. You can't. Um, and so... That's the kind of thing that, uh, that Richard, Richard Nixon did. He wasn't in any trouble of losing his job ever, but it was amusing, and it was perhaps addictive also. And we're going to end with this building. This is the Watergate Hotel, still there in Washington. It's brand new then, very, very, very posh, very funky. It's curvy. It's really interesting. Uh, it's apartments, but people also have offices there, including the Democratic National Convention. The DNC has its office there. And Richard Nixon wants to break in to the DNC uh, to see if they have anything on him. Nothing particular, but just to see. Um, It was a mistake because the people who've burgled on his behalf are actually caught and arrested. And that's the beginning of the downfall of Richard Nixon. Thanks. Thanks.